You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Let's talk about Alexander McLaren. Dargan considers McLaren to be one of the three great representatives of the English Baptist pulpit. And, you know, that's a considerable honor right there to be, you know, one of the top three of the entire English Baptist pulpit. That's very significant. McLaren was born in Edinburgh, though his later life and ministry would, pro- would primarily be confined to London. McLaren was the son of David McLaren, a merchant who was also a Baptist preacher. In 1836, David, that's Alexander's father, went to Australia on business, leaving his family there in Edinburgh. During his absence, his father's absence, Alexander was converted and baptized into the Hope Street Baptist Church in Glasgow when he was 11. When David returned, his father, he took charge of his company's business in London and moved his family there. So he moved his family south from Edinburgh, Scotland, down to London, England, and took charge of the business of the company that he'd been working for down there now. So in 1842, Alexander entered the Baptist College in Stepney, London, and was influenced particularly by Dr. David Davies, an eminent Hebrew scholar. And Alexander, not surprisingly, became an ardent student of the biblical languages. He was a meticulous and scrupulous student. And which means he was very careful, uh, very uh, conscientious of how he used him, how he used his time and his other resources, and also how he studied and prepared and, and how he performed on his various examinations and tests. Upon his graduation, um, well, before that even, he was uh, able to win prizes for Greek and Hebrew at London University. And so, again, demonstrating his great abilities. Now, upon his congregation, he was called to serve the small and run-down Portland Baptist Chapel at Southampton. Again, that's uh, south of London. The congregation was pleased with Alexander McLaren, and they ordained him soon afterwards. Now, his primary focus was the pulpit. We've seen other preachers down through our studies already who've primarily been focused on the pulpit, didn't give themselves as much to pastoral ministry in the field, didn't give themselves as much to um, spending time among the flock. And again, depending on how you uh, look at what they did and their motives for that, you can see uh, kind of their motives for doing so. And in some cases, you have men who are trying to avoid pastoral ministry, trying to simply devote themselves only to the pulpit, others who have the philosophy that you have the greatest impact upon your flock by making sure you invest properly in the pulpit. So you have people who have those different philosophies of preaching and pastoral ministry there, and you will kind of have to, when you get in your own, you have to kind of decide and let the Lord lead you in how you approach those aspects of your responsibility. <clears throat> he later said to his students, Alexander did, I, he said, I thank God that I was stuck down in a quiet, little, obscure place to begin my ministry. For that is what spoils half of you young fellows. You get pitchforked into prominent positions at once 
and then fritter yourselves away in all manner of little engagements that you call duties, going to this tea meeting and that anniversary and the other breakfast celebration, instead of stopping at home and reading your Bibles and getting near to God. I thank God for the early days of struggle and obscurity. And I completely agree with him. Um, it's always good uh, to, to start in those more humble kinds of circumstances, not only to help keep you humble, but also because if you haven't already come to the place where you have been able to polish and refine your giftedness in the pulpit and your uh, love and your sympathy and your compassion for people in pastoral ministry, if you haven't come to the place where you've been able to hone those things into a suitable craft yet, then you need the, the time that such an uh, occasion like that would afford you to get those things in place so that you can, if the Lord wills, serve in a larger, more populous context at some point in the future. And again, that's all up to him. It shouldn't be up to us. So, I uh, appreciate his quote there. Now, his little church did grow, but McLaren's gifts, not surprisingly, made him a very desirable commodity, and he became the pastor of the Union Chapel, a predominantly Baptist gathering at Manchester in 1858, where he remained until his retirement in 1903 due to old age and infirmities. Again, he didn't die until 1910, but he had to kind of... Uh, walk away from the bulk of his responsibility simply because of infirmity and age and those things that go with that. So he served there a long, long time, almost 45 years. Now, he continued to be a student and preacher throughout his life. He was a mighty expounder of the Scriptures, and as a result, many honors came to him. He was twice president of the Baptist Union, as well as President of the Baptist World Congress in 1905. He received a Doctor of Divinity from both the University of Glasgow and the University of Edinburgh. His sermons contain thorough and accurate exegesis, a forceful and clear rhetorical style, and a smoothness and dignity that are eloquent. In their day, McLaren's sermons were second only to Spurgeon's in wideness of readership. So that's quite a statistic. It's quite a uh, characterization of him there. His, his sermon second only to Spurgeon's in wideness of readership. So he was exceedingly popular, and so that means he must have been doing something right when he got up into the pulpit week in, week out to preach. Okay, lastly, we get to look at uh, some guy known as Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> Certainly, we all know a lot about Spurgeon and certainly appreciate him in many ways. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, and, of course, the, the few notes that I have here don't even begin to approximate all of the things that he did in his relatively short life. He really didn't live to be uh, particularly advanced in age, didn't even reach the age of 60. But, uh, nevertheless, he did use what years he had very well. <clears throat> certainly want to point out just a few resources. If you're interested in Spurgeon, a lot of folks are well aware of Living by Revealed Truth by Tom Nettles, uh, a wonderful work that just came out a short time ago. This is The Life and Pastoral Theology 
of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a uh, tremendous resource. It's received uh, high accolades from a variety of scholars and individuals. Uh, just a, a great work and uh, really one of the uh, high, high points of the very prolific pen of Tom Nettles. Uh, so just great work. I want to encourage you to, to look at that. And certainly an older biography, but nevertheless still a good one, Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers by Lewis Drummond. Uh, a great biography, obviously a very thick one uh, that has been around a little bit longer. Uh, it was uh, copyrighted in 1992, so it's a little more than 20 years old, but still very, very good uh, biographical material on Spurgeon. Uh, again, the one by Nettles is a little more refined into talking more about his pastoral theology and so forth, whereas the one by Drummond is a little more uh, broadly sweeping of his life. But nevertheless, some good resources there. would encourage you to uh, look at those and, and, and review them as you have opportunity. So let's talk about Charles Spurgeon. His family is Huguenot in origin. That means he's uh, descended from French Protestants. That, that term Huguenot was originally a, a derisive kind of name given to these uh, French Protestants influenced by John Calvin. Now, James Spurgeon, Charles's grandfather, uh, came uh, and settled in Essex, which is an area near London, and he was the pastor of the Independent Church at Stambourne, Essex, for 54 years. So already setting a, an important pattern for Charles's life and ministry of being faithful to a single congregation for a long period of time, really most of your life. Uh, and so that was, uh, I'm sure, very formative for Charles. And his father, John Spurgeon, was a Congregationalist preacher, as well as a businessman as well. Uh, Charles, as he was growing up, spent a lot of time at his grandfather's parsonage in the care of his grandparents. Uh, and as he grew up, he was a bright and thoughtful child, but he had a fondness for reading his grandfather's books. Charles received a good schooling, but did not particularly demonstrate any really remarkable abilities at, at a young age. His conversion took place when he was 16 years old. He heard a sermon by an unknown preacher uh, in a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester, and so this is when he obeyed the gospel, trusted in Jesus Christ, conf confessed his sins. And later he became convinced of Baptist doctrine and joined the Baptist church at uh, Islam. Soon afterwards, he transferred his membership to Cambridge, joining the church where Robert Hall had pastored, and he began preaching. It was not long uh, until he was called as pastor of the small Baptist church at Water Beach, which is near Cambridge. As with, as with anyone's early preaching, Spurgeon's needed some refinement, but it bore all the signs of ability and power. So again, as we've said, when you get started, you're still not a master uh, initially of standing before people week in, week out, and delivering one or multiple sermons to them from the Scriptures. Uh, you, you don't have all of that presence of mind. You don't have all of that ability immediately. You have to get experience. You have to get uh, some time under your belt in doing that before you have the confidence and the ability and the refinement to be able to do that well. But certainly all the, all the signs of ability and, and capability were detectable in Spurgeon. 
Somehow, the famous and at that time run down <clears throat> Baptist church uh, of Gill and Keach and John Rippon heard of Spurgeon's worth and abilities and invited him to preach for them. This visit resulted in his call to that pastorate, and his success there was almost immediate. The church um, that had really become run down and was no longer all that active or vibrant uh, began to grow dramatically, and <clears throat> the meeting houses that they kept trying to meet in uh, for their gatherings just were not able to accommodate all of the crowds that were coming. People were coming in such droves and in such numbers, the buildings kept becoming insufficient uh, to hold the, the, uh, the mass of people. So, the decision was made to build a much larger place for their public worship, and the Metropolitan Tabernacle was begun in 1861. Again, that corresponds with about the time of the beginning of the American Civil War. And it was you know, proposed to seat about 6,000. Some say 5,500, some say about 6,000. Regardless, that's a whole lot of people to uh, try to get in one place. Now, when he celebrated his 50th birthday in 1884, Spurgeon was in the, the fullness of a wonderful ministry as preacher, builder, author, and leader. Again, we know that at this point, he's already doing so much, and, and, he's, and he's so scheduled, and he's so busy. I mean, he's not only is he uh, editing sermons all the time for publication. You know, he's, he's had men who are transcribing his sermons, and then he's uh, sitting down personally correcting them and modifying them a little bit, and then sending them off to the, the printer for them to be published and put forth, um, both in the Penny Pulpit and, and other uh, publications. He's got pastor school going on that he's established, training men for the ministry, making sure that they have solid education to get them ready to serve. You've got uh, him doing, obviously, his preaching responsibilities. He's probably got other speaking engagements going on. He has family responsibilities to take care of. Uh, just an enormous amount of work for this man to do, and yet he obviously thrives on that kind of activity at that level. He obviously thrives on that. And so he, even at, at the age of 50, again, he's got only 10 years, not even 10 years left to live at that point, but even at this age, he is you know, in the fullness of a very, very vibrant, very busy, very active career uh, as um, someone involved in serving the Lord in this great capacity to this great church uh, in the heart of London. Now, his many labors... All the work he was doing, all of the hours he was keeping, all of the you know, correspondence he was giving, all of the reading that he was doing, all of the preparing for sermons that he was doing, just an just enormous amount of work, as we've said, uh, did cause him to begin to have trouble with his health, and it um, gave him a lot of trouble over the years. And as the work continued, I mean, the work didn't, didn't lighten up any. So as the work continued, he began to decline. His health began to fade slowly. Uh, he tried to retreat to France uh, for rest. He went there multiple times to try to get away from it all for a few days so that he could rest and recover physically from the demands of his exceedingly busy schedule. But nevertheless, on his visit there in 1892, he passed away. Now, Spurgeon, of course, uh, his preaching was unusually wonderful in power and popularity. 
Uh, doubtless, he was the most impressive and permanently successful evangelistic preacher of his age. He possessed an excellent ability to relate to common, ordinary people. Again, you know, we remember that he didn't in school show any great and unusual abilities academically. I mean, he was educated and he had uh, that under his belt, but he, he wasn't like so many of these other scholars, you know, who have, uh, you know, advanced degrees and have, you know, just amazing knowledge of multiple languages, not just those that underlie the Bible, but so many others as well. He, he's not one of those kinds of people. He, he, he's much more able to relate to common, ordinary people, to speak their language, to, to, to talk in their vernacular. And that's one of the reasons why he was so appealing is because he was able to speak to them in a language they understood and get down on their level and share with them the message of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We know that in doctrine, he was an old-fashioned evangelical Calvinist from beginning to end. I want to read um, a little bit from Dargan um, on him. but I find that I've left it in my briefcase. Give me just a moment to pick that up. Dargan's historical account of Spurgeon is very extensive, uh, covers an enormous amount of material on him. Again, there's just no way to try to collapse all of that into... um, this lecture, but nevertheless, I want to try to share a little bit about him. What then were the elements of his Spurgeon's power? The natural man was well endowed. While he had a homely face and a stocky figure, he had a fine expression and was gifted with a voice of great sweetness, smoothness, compass, and sympathy. In intellect, he was alert, clever, sound and strong, with fine imagination, large and shrewd observation, and a wide reading with retentive memory. In temperament, he was genial, winsome, sympathetic, hearty. Candor and sincerity were evident in him with simplicity and strength of character. The Christian showed in all of his work. To his pious upbringing was added the deep experience of a definite and decisive conversion and the joy of his salvation by grace resounded in no uncertain tones throughout his whole ministry. He was a mighty man in prayer, and his devoted loyalty and consecration to Christ were manifest in all that he did. Faithfulness and courage were not wanting in the rounding out of his manhood in Christ. The pastor's heart was his, and though he could not visit much, he kept in personal touch with his great flock in many telling ways, And his leadership was wise, loving, progressive, and masterful. The preacher, however, was ever preeminent. In the use of Scripture, he was rich, devout, effective, though sometimes at fault in interpretation. His style was rich, racy, homely, powerful Saxon, sometimes undignified but ever clear and strong, and often sweet and eloquent. His delivery was free, easy and natural, and he spoke without notes, and his sermons being reported and revised, not written beforehand. In spirit, faith, hope, and love breathed in his preaching. The glory of God in saving men was his ruling motive. Great was his work, and great his reward. 
And certainly we're thankful for a ministry of a man like Charles Spurgeon, and certainly thanks to all of his sermons and other things that have been reprinted down through the years, we have a vast corpus of material to uh, study and, and learn from regarding this man. In fact, he, I believe, he holds the distinction of having published more than any other English-speaking man ever, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, just an enormous amount of work for uh, the course of his life. I mean, so many sermons coming out, so many other materials coming out uh, from his pen. Some years ago, uh, John MacArthur wrote the book, Ashamed of the Gospel, and it was a book that, whose subtitle says, When the Church Becomes Like the World. And he uses the experiences of Spurgeon regarding the downgrade controversy as uh, a part of the illustrative material that he uses in his book. And it's really important, I think, that we make mention of what took place uh, in Spurgeon's life regarding the downgrade controversy. Again, this was a, 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 a season uh, of his life that was really unpleasant. It was a time when he was standing firm on biblical truth, preaching it faithfully, and yet uh, increasingly people did not want to hear it. Uh, people did not have ears for what he was preaching any longer, and it resulted ultimately in him leaving the church, and, and later he was formally dismissed from the church. But here's one of the things that he wrote in The Sword and the Trowel. Spurgeon writes, At the end of the Puritan age, by some means or other, first the ministers and then the churches got on the downgrade. And in some cases, the descent was rapid and in all very disastrous. In proportion, as the ministers seceded from the old Puritan godliness of life and the old Calvinistic form of doctrine, they commonly became less earnest and less simple in their preaching, more speculative and less spiritual in the matter of their discourses, and dwelt more on the moral teachings of the New Testament than on the great central truths of Revelation. Natural theology frequently took the place which the great truths of the gospel ought to have held, and the sermons became more and more Christless. Corresponding results in the character and life, first of the preachers and then of the people, were only too plainly apparent. <clears throat> so, sometimes... We're forced to stand up for the truth as preachers. Spurgeon certainly did, and even a man with such unbelievable popularity, unbelievable numbers of people attending to hear him week in and week out, buying his sermons and uh, patronizing his ministry and supporting his ministry. Uh, eventually, so many uh, walked away from him, no longer wishing to hear the truth, no longer having an appetite for the things of God, uh, but only for what they wanted to hear, and only for receiving it in a way that they approved of. And so uh, very unfortunate effects, you know, in the short run for Spurgeon. He was faithful throughout. He was uh, utterly doing what he should have been doing. It's just unfortunate that uh, the people were not understanding and aware that they had fallen prey uh, to, to liberalism and to... Um, such unfaithfulness to God. So that is Charles Spurgeon. 
again, so much more we could have said about him, about all of these other guys, and about all of this century in England, but nevertheless, we, we had to draw the line somewhere and uh, try to make this uh, available in a way that uh, we could manage through. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.